0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Sinclair Ferguson once said that there's nothing more important to learn about Christ, Christian growth, than this. Growing. In grace means becoming like Christ. So how do we live here and now in light of the gospel? That's where we are in this series on the book of Romans. How are we going to live in this life in light of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus by his grace and his mercy? I mean, how is this radical truth of the gospel supposed to affect us here today? Because Paul says the gospel is the very power of God to accomplish something miraculous. It is the power of God to rescue sinners. It's the power of God to take what was dead and make it alive again. It's the power of God to take the ones who were enemies And then make them children of God. It's the power of God to take what was thoroughly corrupted and twisted and broken beyond repair and make it new again. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to save the ungodly. Not by their works, not by their efforts, not by their deeds, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God to save sinners. And in Romans chapters 1 through 11, Paul's been explaining that and how that can be true. In the first few chapters, he lets us know what the gospel is, that it's the bad news that all sinners are under the wrath of God. And it's the good news that we are justified by faith in Christ. He then explains the blessings that the gospel offers to those who believe, including peace with God, access to his grace and the love of God poured out into our hearts. And then he explains how the gospel works. How can one man bring all who believe into right relationship with God? How can so many sinners be justified by the work of Christ? And Paul explains that just as Adam was our representative before God in the garden, Jesus is now our new covenant representative by faith. And by faith, we're united to him. And then he explains the freedom the gospel provides to those who believe it. Freedom from the law and freedom from sin itself. And then he takes us by the hand and he leads us to the glorious summit of our hope. And he shows us the truth that all believers who put their faith in Christ are safe in the hands of God. And the promise of the gospel is that there is no condemnation and there is no separation from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then right after that, Paul explains the reason for the security of our hope, and that is the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God, that God is faithful to his people, and that God is the one who brings salvation to mankind. It is the work that he does, not something that we do for him. It's the work that he accomplishes in us, and because of that, we can rest secure in him And after explaining all of that, Paul gets really practical then and begins to talk about how we are to live this new, born-again life. How we live this life in this world, here and now, in light of the power of the gospel. And he begins in chapter 12 reminding us that because of the gospel, we have been restored in that relationship with God, the relationship we were created for. And because of that, we ought to then live that way. We ought to live our lives in light of God's mercy as a living sacrifice, not allowing ourselves to be shaped by the world around us, but to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and God's word by the renewing of our minds. That we're to be changed from the inside out to live lives that are pleasing to him. And the manifestation of that, the manifestation of that life, Is how we live before the rest of the world, how we live before the rest of our fellow man. And Paul has been unpacking for us what that looks like, beginning with the family of God. He explains that we who belong to the family of God ought to to humbly submit ourselves to one another and love each other with a sacrificial kind of love, serving each other, recognizing we are all a member of the same family that we are part of one another's lives. We could spend the next two or three years just preaching on that subject alone, how interconnected our lives ought to be as brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul then moves on to explain how we are to live this transformed life toward those who are not part of God's family, towards those who are hostile toward our God and to the life that we live. And he tells us, right, tells us that we are to live in harmony with all those around us, that we're to seek to live peaceably with everyone around us, that we're to bless those who, who curse us, that we're to do good to even our enemies, and that we need to trust in God's justice and on our own, and that we need to be compassionate to everyone. In other words, Paul is saying, in light of the gospel, we need to be a good neighbor. And then he says that we also need to be a good citizen. We need to be a good citizen, citizen by living in submission to those in authority over us. This is something that really people, all of us, I think as Americans especially, struggle with. Living in submission to those that God has placed in authority over us, whether it is the federal government or the state government or law enforcement or our children's mm-hmm. teachers, right? Or even at times now when people don't like anything, have anything to do with faith, even the ministers in their lives. God is the author of authority, and out of respect for him, we ought to live our life visibly submitted to those that God has placed in authority over our lives. And so Paul says to be a good neighbor and to be a good citizen. And then the thing that holds all of this together, the glue that makes it all work, is simply the word love. The supernatural love that flows not from us in our flesh, but flows from the Holy Spirit into our hearts and out into the rest of the world. And we talked about this love, that it's a debt that we owe as Christians to the world. And it's really the way that we live that fulfills the law. By loving like this, we are showing the rest of the world the light of God's Goodness and by walking in love and loving even the hardest to love, we are shining the light of Christ before the rest of the world. And then last week, we talked about the reason why we are to live this way. And the reason is just simply this it's because the day is drawing near. We as Christians live in the overlap between the already but not yet. We live right in the hope of Christ's glorious return, but still in a fallen, broken world. And we still look at the horizon and we see our hope that Christ would come back and finally bring final salvation to us. But we're also surrounded by people right now who are not ready to meet him. There's so many people around us that if Christ were to return now, would be lost forever. And so Paul exhorts us to live as examples of God's love and light for the rest of the world now because the day is drawing near so that more would be saved. We're to live transformed lives here and now, shine in the light of Christ before a broken world, a dying world before Christ returns. And then Paul ends the chapter, chapter 13, and he tells us how we're to do this. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, we briefly touched on this last week, but this point bears some reflection because this is really, I think, where the rubber meets the road for us. This is where our theology And what we understand about the gospel, this is where it must intersect our lives. It is in this verse right here. There are times we read Bible verses. There are times we read passages of Scripture and we think we kind of have a handle on it. We just kind of move over, especially if it doesn't speak and shout out really loud to us. This is one of those verses that I've kind of skipped over myself, moving on to to chapter 14. But this verse right here is really the essence of what Paul's driving at. In this verse, Paul is telling us the way in which we are to be good citizens and the way in which we are to be good neighbors. This is how we are to walk in love with our fellow man. This is how we're to live in light of God's mercy. It is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. To put on Christ now this expression in English is one that's kind of strange it just doesn't it doesn't seem to fit the way we think that the language should work because what does it mean to put on Christ well let's look at the phrase put on it's from a Greek word called that says a Greek word that's pronounced enduo and what this word literally means is it means to clothe yourself which is why the NIV translates this verse, I think, correctly. It says, clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself. That's what it means to put on Christ, is to clothe yourself in Christ. Paul is saying that you're to put on Christ like a garment, that you're to cover yourself in Christ. Now, as strange as it might seem to us, this expression of clothing yourself Or putting something on is an idea that's not new in the New Testament. It's something that's been repeated over and over again. In fact, this expression is used 27 times in the New Testament. Like in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off. The old self, you've taken the old self off with the practices and have put on. You've clothed yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the creator. Ephesians 4.24, he says, and put on, right, clothe yourself, the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. First Thessalonians 5.8, he says, but since you belong to the day, let us be sober, having Put on, clothe yourself with a breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Not to mention the passage that many of us are familiar with in Ephesians six, where we're told to put our, put on, or clothe yourself with the armor of God. Even in Romans thirteen twelve, Paul says we're to put on or clothe ourselves with the armor of light. And so this is an important expression that Paul uses repeatedly throughout this letter we would do well to think about what paul is saying here because this is how this is how we walk in love in a way that allows us to shine the light of christ to a dying world we are to clothe ourselves in christ we are to wrap ourselves in christ and so this morning i want to spend some time thinking about this one verse And what it means for us here and now before we move on to chapter 14. I want us to think about how it might shape our lives and how we live right now in Boron in light of the gospel. And the first thing I want you to realize is that clothing ourselves in Christ, like our salvation, has two dimensions to it. It has the already but not yet dimension to it. We've already been clothed in Christ, but then there's the ongoing sense of us continually putting on Christ. In Galatians chapter three, Paul writes, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female for all for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says By the nature of our salvation and baptism, we have already put on Christ. We are unified in Christ. In a very real sense, we have been saved, as we talked about. It's a done deal. And Paul's point of saying this is that we already, by that, have unity with one another. We are one in Christ. By the way, that should impact how we live together, was his point. which is the point of Colossians 3, right? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away: anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. In the very real sense, the faith of Christ that we have put on, in the very real sense, by faith, we have put on Christ already. It's the already sense of our salvation. You have already been made new, as the word of God declares. You have already been adopted into God's family, a truth that we hold on to with great joy. We have already been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In fact, in Isaiah 64.10, Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The foreshadowing of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a joyful truth that I hold on to every single day in my own life. We have already been closed if we have faith in the righteousness of Christ. This is the part of the great exchange and why the substitutionary atonement of Christ of the gospel is so important to us by faith our sins have been forgiven because they have been credited to christ on the cross jesus bore our sins on the cross and suffered the wrath of god on our behalf the wrath that we deserve so that we could be set free but even more than that right His righteous standing that he earned before God, living the life that we should have lived but could not live, that life was credited to us. It's imputed to us. His righteousness is credited to our account. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness, meaning that one day... When we stand before God, we will have no reason to fear, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. And we are covered in what he has done. We are covered in his righteousness. And that is the already nature of us being clothed in Christ. It is a settled reality. It is something you can rest in. You have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ. But as with our salvation... This putting on Christ has an ongoing sense to it as well. Just like how sanctification is this process of us being saved from the power of sin, where we work with the Holy Spirit to continually overcome the power of sin. In the same sense, we need to actively put on Christ or clothe ourselves in Christ. Okay, pastor, what does that mean? Well, the first thing we need to consider is the purpose of clothing in the first place. I mean, why do we put clothes on or why do we wear clothes in the first place? Well, for two basic reasons, for protection and for projection, for project, for protection and for projecting our or presenting ourselves to the rest of the world. We put on clothes, right? We wear clothes to protect our skin from the sun and from the wind and from the elements and the temperatures. We wear clothes to protect ourselves, but also to project ourselves to the world because we care about what the rest of the world and how they see us that's why none of us are here this morning dressed in our bed clothes that we were dressed in just a few hours ago right we put on the clothes we want the world to see we wear clothes to cover our bodies for protection and we wear clothes to pr- represent who we are to the rest of the world or for projection and it's the same thing with putting on Christ. We put on Christ for protection, protection from our enemy, protection from the one who would want to harm us. We put on Christ actively to, to, to protect ourselves, but we also put it, put on Christ to actively represent him to the rest of the world. And by the way, that's what the scriptures tell us. In Romans chapter 13, 12, Paul writes, right? The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of the darkness and put on the Armor of lights armor is for protection Ephesians chapter six finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over the their present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places There is a spiritual war going on all around us all the time. We are to put on the protection that God has given us. We put on Christ as armor for protection to protect us against the enemy. But we also put on Christ to represent him or project him to the world. In Colossians, we read, put on then, as Christ's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience put on the very characteristics of Christ bearing with one another and if 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 one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the lord has forgiven you you must also forgive and above all put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ in your rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body to be be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We put on Christ to show him and his glory to the rest of the world. We put on Christ so that Others can see in our lives the goodness of the love of God. We put him on to protect ourselves, and we put him on to project him to those around us. Okay. Then then what does that mean? I mean, does that mean that we need to bring back the WWJD bracelets and the bumper stickers? You know, that, that stuff where it said, what would Jesus do? Do we need to constantly ask ourselves, what would Jesus do if we, in this situation or that? No, this is not about, you know, trying to figure out how Christ would do things in the world that we live in. It has everything to do with how we respond to Christ by faith. I think that Trimper Longman, in his commentary, um, he gets right to the heart of the issue and he says this, and I think these words are, are, are worth hearing, he says that putting on Christ is the deliberate, conscious acceptance of the Lordship of Christ so that in so that all is under his control, our motives, our desires, and our deeds. I want to I read that again because I think those words really just ring true and hit me right in the heart. That putting on Christ is the deliberate, conscious acceptance of of the lordship of christ so that all is under his control our motives our desires and our deeds it is accepting christ's lordship over our entire life it is allowing him to be the king over our entire life he goes on to say it is true that believers have already clothed themselves in christ according to galatians three twenty seven 27 at conversion and baptism, but there is also a sense in which one needs to renew one's commitment to the worship of Christ on a regular basis, I mean, a commitment to the lordship of Christ on a regular basis. To be clothed with with Christ should mean that believers uh, become like their Lord in his righteousness so they become an effective witness to the truth of the gospel. There it is that we commit ourselves to the lordship of Christ so that his righteousness shines through us so we can be better witnesses for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Being clothed in Christ is coming back again and again and again and again and and submitting to Christ's lordship in our lives. Now, what do I say again and again and again? Because it's in us to, to wander. It's in us to turn away, right? But it's the conscious coming back to him and submitting our will and our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes and all that we are to him and his lordship. That's what it means to put on Christ. It is declare that Jesus is the Lord of our lives in all things. In the way that we conduct our marriages and relationships, in the way that we raise our children, in the way that we do our jobs, in the way that we treat our teenagers, in the way that we behave towards our enemies. In a way that we we conduct our personal finances, in the way that we worship, in the way that we serve each other, and in the way that we live on mission. It's about coming back to him again and again, submitting to God, submitting to Christ's lordship. That's what it means to put on Christ. That's how we protect ourselves from the enemy that is how we shine the light of Christ we continually renew this commitment to his lordship in our lives but again how do we do this first paul says in romans 13:12 that we're to cast off the works of darkness or take off the, our night clothes In other words, we need to repent and walk away from the deeds of darkness and our sin. This is the truth that we as Christians need to continue to embrace, that we need to identify sin in our lives and walk away from it. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, Now I say and testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of your minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have been given; they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, the truth is in, is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, to the corrupt. Th- uh, um, th- that is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be not angry and do not be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Words that should ring in our hearts all the time. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We need to continually put away the deeds of darkness. We need to continually mortify our fleshly desires. We need to fight back and put to death the sin that's in our lives. Not for salvation. We've already been saved. We need to do this in order to be the light that shines in the darkness. And even more, Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. In other words, don't give room in your life for fleshly desires to pop up and creep in. In fact, you know, the fact is we're all going to be tempted. It's going to happen. We will all be tempted and we all battle remaining sin. And we all struggle with this and we will struggle with this all the way until Christ calls us home. But sin isn't something that just happens to us. It's something that we foster and participate in. Sometimes knowingly and sometimes not knowingly. Right? And it's something that we are to kill and not nurture. And what Paul is saying is don't nurture that temptation. Don't make room for it to grow in your life. I think the easiest example is, you know, how about this? When a person at work flirts with you, don't flirt back. Flirting is making room for sin to take root. Sometimes people think that it's okay, that it's, it's, that it's benign. It always starts that way. All sin starts with that little seed that doesn't seem to be such a big deal. But we let it kind of fall to the ground and we let it take root and we say, look how cute that is. And we let it grow a little bit. It all begins like that. And it's the same with gossip. It's the same with idolatry. It's the same with covetousness. It's the same with greed. It's the same with every kind of sin. It always begins at this small seed. And what Paul is saying is don't let it have room. Don't let it have provision. Don't let it take up space in your mind. Don't entertain thoughts on how you might get away with it. Instead, he says, put on Christ. Okay, Pastor, you keep saying that, but how do I do that? Well, there are two things that I want to point you to this morning that I believe that constitute putting on Christ and that I think will help you to make him and keep him the Lord of your life. And the, and the first one is to simply keep the gospel at the center of your life. All right. In fact, you might want to write that one down. Keep the gospel at the very center of your life. The gospel is the beginning and the middle and the end of a relationship with God. It is all of it. It is everything. The gospel is not the first step into Christianity and then you move on to Christianity 2.0. Your relationship with God is always grounded and always centered on and always focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we must always center our life and our minds and our hearts on the gospel, which means we ought to know it and think about it and memorize it. And more importantly, you need to preach it to yourself over and over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how you get through life if you can't preach the gospel to yourself. Because I can't. I have to continually remind myself of who God is and who I am and what He's done for me and the basis on, on, on which I'm saved. If it's not for that, I'm going to fall into the pit of legalism like that. I will fall into works righteousness faster than you can blink an eye if I don't keep my eye on the gospel. We must preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again and we must hold on to it and rest in it. The gospel isn't. Part of the Christian life. The gospel is the Christian life. And we must never fail to have it front and center of our minds continually. It must be the lens through which we see the rest of the world. It must be the lens through which we see our families. It must be the lens through which we see our ministry. It is the truth that must shape every part of our lives. And it's simply the truth that God is the creator of all things. And that he is holy, righteous, perfect, and just. And there is nothing, nothing outside of him. And that he created us special to have a relationship with him. That's what it means to be created in his image. We were created for him. And our lives are void and meaningless without that relationship. But the bad news is, because of our sin, we have been separated from God, the God that we were made for. And worse, we are rebels against him, with one, wanting nothing to do with him. And we've become his enemies, enemies who were bent on going our own way and violating his, his law and his standard every way that we possibly could. And in our rebellion or contempt for God that earned us God's justice just the same as we expect that righteous judges make sure that that uh, criminals don't go unpunished we deserve the full condemnation and the weight of God's wrath we rightly deserve His justice, which is hell. And nobody wants to talk about it in our polite society today. Nobody wants to to think about it. Everyone's offended by this notion that we rightly deserve to be cast out of God's presence into outer darkness. But that's what we deserve. By what we have done on our own, the wages of sin, what we've earned is death. And to make it worse, there isn't anything we could do to fix it. We can't make ourselves right with God, even if we wanted to. We can't undo the stain of our own sins. We can't be kind enough and gentle enough and loving enough and sweet enough and caring enough. We can't be devoted enough. We can't be passionate enough. There's nothing we can do to change these hard hearts of stone that we have. You can't do it. Which means ultimately then, as mankind, all of mankind, is in the same condition. Sinners who were helpless and hopeless with no hope except for God to do something. And that's what he did. God, in his overwhelming love and grace and mercy, because of his own goodwill and his own good pleasure, made a way for sinners to be redeemed. He sent Jesus Christ into the world, born of a virgin, God in the flesh, who lived in his humanity the perfect life that we couldn't live, but we were supposed to live. And then he suffered and died on the cross, making atonement for our sins, bearing the wrath of God that we deserve. You want to see the intersection of justice and love? Look at the cross. There God crushed his own son so that we could be set free. And he died in our place and three days later rose him from the dead, proving that the debt had been paid. And now he's ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now actively pleads your case. And all that is required of you and of me is to turn to him in repentance and faith and all of the gifts of eternal life are given to us. We must keep that truth at front and center of our lives. As we sang this morning, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. The next thing, which is equally, I think, turned away by people, even those that call themselves Christians, is we must avail ourselves of the ordinary means of grace given to us. Everybody's looking for a sign. Everybody's looking for, for, for some feeling. Everybody's looking for something supernatural to happen around them, but they forget that God has already given us the ordinary means of grace for us to have a deep relationship with Him and to, to live the life clothed in Christ. Kevin DeYoung, he's a pastor, and he wrote this. He says, if you want to be Christ-like, you need to have communion with Christ. And if you want communion with Christ, you need to do it on his terms with the channels of grace he has provided. Prayer, Bible reading, church fellowship, Lord's table. And that means the only way to extraordinary holiness is through ordinary means. We need to avail ourselves of the ordinary means of grace Beginning with prayer, brothers and sisters, if there is a gift that God has given to humanity, a gift that is underutilized, a gift that is oftentimes unused, is the gift of prayer. I'm going to tell you right now, something bad happens, we're going to get on our knees and pray, but we forget that we should be in prayer every day thanking the Lord for his goodness. We should be in prayer every day praying for our children and our grandchildren. We should be in prayer every day, praying for our nation and the leaders of our nation. We should be in prayer, praying for our church families. We should be praying for revival. You want to be closer to God? Be in prayer. You want to put on Christ? Be in prayer. It's one of the ordinary means of grace. It's the greatest gift that God has given to humanity besides Christ himself, that you, a sinner, can walk into the throne room of heaven right now, and say, "Abba, Father," and He hears you. That moves me to tears to think about the fact that the God of the universe would would allow the likes of me to stand in His presence and hear my voice. The means of grace, beginning with with prayer, and then moving on to a time in the Word. We live in one of the greatest times in all of human history that every human being, at least in our country, can have their own copy of the Bible. And most people have multiple copies. And if you have a cell phone, you have access to just about every version there is available in humanity. You could even study the Greek and the Hebrew language if you wanted to right there from your own phone. what What wasn't even possible 100 years ago where people couldn't even actually confirm what the language said, you have tools that are available to you. But yet, so many people are Bible ignorant. So many people are ignorant of what the scriptures actually say about God. People have strong opinions that are not based in what the Word of God actually says. You want to be Christ-like? You want to be clothed in Christ? Be in His Word. In, in, in studying it, reading it, meditating on it. And then, the one that's very neglected in our time is corporate worship. We were not saved to live as Lone Ranger Christians. Right? And and here's the thing is I don't care which congregation you belong to, right? It could be this little bitty one or it can be the mega church somewhere else. It doesn't matter to me. But we were not called to be Christians, to live our lives autonomously by ourselves, trying to figure out how to do this life by ourselves. We were created to be part of a family, to worship together, to fellowship with one another, to exhort each other, to encourage one another, to strengthen each other, to hold on to one another. We are here to help each other, to disciple each other, to help each other grow in grace. The Christian life means being part of the body of Christ. I've heard people say, well, I love, I love Jesus. I just, I just hate his people. Okay, that's fine. That's like saying to me, hey, you know, I, I love you, but I hate your wife. Well, it don't work that way. And the reality is, is Christ died for his bride. Right? He loves his bride. And if you're in Christ, you're supposed to be part of the bride. You're supposed to be part of that fellowship. And then there's the Lord's table, which we'll observe in just a little while, where we take the elements and we remember the ordinary means of grace where we are brought together by the blood and the bread. Not to mention we also are to serve one another. Christian life is about service. I'm going to tell you right now, you want to see yourself grow in your relationship with God, start serving. Not because you, what's, what's, what's funny is you think that you're going to serve and you're going to help people. What ends up happening is you help yourself more. There's something about service that draws you closer to God than you can possibly imagine. And then living life on mission, recognizing that we weren't saved simply just to be bumps on the log, just sitting in chairs, you know, singing songs that we were to, were to be engaging our culture and our world around us. It's the ordinary means of grace. That's how we put on Christ. It's getting up and going to work. It's getting up and praying and reading your word. And then when you go to work, that you are a light that shines there. It's in the way that you share the love of Christ with your children. It's the way that you share the love of Christ with your with your grandchildren. It's the way in which that you engage with your neighbors, even those ones that irritate you. And I want you to know these are the areas that the Lord beats me up about at times too. I know who this guy is. And the Lord continually puts people in my path that challenge me to really really grow to be gracious. But what I do know is I want to live for his glory, not for mine. Not Not because I want him to save me because of my actions. I just want to honor him in my life because of what he's already done for me. And that's what it means to put on Christ. Live the gospel-centered life with it focused on your heart and mind and then, and then avail yourself the ordinary means of grace that God has given you to walk this Christian life where he will grow you and change you and shape you. It's not about you being perfect. It's not about you never making mistakes. It's not about you having to be this Christian who never, ever has a bad day. By the way, I'm going to tell you right now, if you're a Christian who never has a bad day, I don't know if you really actually are a Christian because you're lying to yourself. Because we are all going to have bad days, right? We are all going to struggle. It's about trusting in the gospel and then coming back again and again and again to Christ's lordship and letting him be the Lord of our lives. Let me